Hello, and welcome back to Say Something, a podcast series hosted by the Breadcast and Bread Coffeehouse. This summer, we'll be highlighting the stories of black students. This week, we'll be hearing from Justin Burnett, a rising sophomore at Emory University. I hope you enjoy his story. I'm Justin Burnett. I'm a rising sophomore at Emory. I was born and raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is about a suburb of Atlanta. Um, I usually just say I'm from Atlanta to people who aren't from Georgia, but I'm not. So, tell me about your neighborhood you grew up in. I know I know Stone Mountain fairly well, but what was it like growing up in Stone Mountain? I mean, it was um, just a normal kind of suburban neighborhood. My neighborhood is was more black when I was a kid, um, like majority black, nine, but 99% black when I was a kid. It's still very majority black, but we've had, you know, people have moved over the years and stuff. It's not as black as it was. But yeah, just a normal, pretty quiet neighborhood. We grew up at Stone Mountain a lot. It's literally next to my house, basically. So, you know, we were there all the time, hiking the mountain, doing all that stuff, so. When was the first time that race and being black, like something that you noticed in your own life? Honestly, it's like not, not really ever been something I've noticed. I know there's never like a moment where I was like, wow, my skin color is different. Whoa. Or like, you know, appearances, you know, or like, so, you know, this, you're black or something like that. I mean, that that's just, you know, never really been something that that's occurred in my life. I mean, it's not to say I'm not aware <laughs> that I'm black. <laughs> But it's just like, it's never been like some kind of, I never had like just some kind of realization. It's just like, you know, I've always kind of, from as early as I could remember, just like understood and accepted that. It was never kind of like a, had this moment of realization or something like that. What was your school like? So I was homeschooled to middle school. And then I was enrolled in like a, a hybrid homeschool, private school. I usually don't tell anybody this. It's usually just, yeah, I went to private school, tiny private school that you've never heard of. That's my go-to line because uh, the stereotypes run homeschooling and then just having to explain to people what, what, what exactly hybrid schooling is. But yeah, for the sake of this, I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. So yeah, like I said, I was homeschooled to middle school. And during that period, we had a group that was like, DCHE, um, which was DeKalb County Homeschool Educators, which was a black group. I mean, we're all homeschooled, obviously. And most of them were like, some of them were just, most of them were like friends of my parents and and stuff. So we were in that group for a while. We didn't really, I have an older brother, two years older. um, So we were like in this group at the same time. And we just, eh, we didn't really, like the the group that much most of the people in it so we eventually like stopped doing that and this when we went to this hybrid school basically what that is is like we would go one day a week and have classes just like a normal school taught by 
real teachers that were mostly parents, yes, but they were also like legit actual teachers who just happened to have kids. And yeah, we would go one day a week, you know, get taught everything. And then we'd go home for the next six days and have actual homework assigned and come back, turn it in, you know, that day, have class. So that's kind of that how that was. So we kind of interacted with everyone at that school once a week. And that school was majority white. Like, <laughs> um, it was like started by a couple you know, parents who are teachers who are like, we want to start homeschooling our kids and we're teachers. So we're going to start doing this. And it's a Christian school. So like they were all Christians and they wanted to do that. So it started out very white and it was mostly spread by word of mouth and spread in their circles. So, you know, it was very majority white. And when we entered, we kind of started spreading around our circles. And so we were some of the first black students at that school. And then, you know, we brought in some of our friends who homeschool as friends from church or whatever, some friends from DCHE eventually joined. So like, as we, I was there for, for six years. So I want to say I started in like seventh grade. Yeah, I started seventh grade. So like, as we progressed, like it got more diverse, not significantly more diverse. But it, it got more di um, diverse. I was probably, it, it was tiny. I don't think people understand what I mean by that. Like my graduating class was 32. <laughs> and out of that, like there were three, yeah, there were three black people um, in my class of 32. So that was, that was one of my community school, um, very majority white. We, we didn't really have conversations around race or anything like that it didn't really play a big factor into anything everyone kind of had their groups but they weren't determined along race lines like the black people didn't sit together and then white people you know sit together it was just kind of a fact that you know they were a minority and it was majority white what about like other communities like your church or other groups you're involved in we went to a church that was pretty evenly split, but the youth ministry was heavily black. I, I don't know why, to be honest. Like, I really don't. Cause like, or maybe it's because it, it was an older church. I don't know if you know Pastor Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley, Andy Stanley's father. His church, First Baptist Church Orlando, that's where he went. And it was mostly an older church because, I mean, he was an older pastor and it brought most of his congregation with him. So, like, many and, and many of the, like, the, the split, which was, like, white-black, was also more like the, the white people were kind of older and the black people were mostly younger. Not, like, it was all young black people, but it was mostly, like, younger. So I, I don't know if that maybe have was part of the reason that, like, you know, the youth ministry was heavily like 80 to 90% black. But so that was another like community that I had there. Race didn't play, you know, a huge factor. We didn't talk about that race that much, but it was more evident just in like the way, because white people were a minority in it. I don't know, it just felt different. It felt like a different environment. It, it was a different environment. 
I had a lot, like, grew up all kind of in a bunch of different, you know, places and stuff because not everything was concentrated around, like, a public school or, like, a private school that I went to that had, like, all the sports and extracurriculars and all of that. So all of my extracurriculars, you know, were over the place. So I did debate and sports. I played Ultimate, Ultimate Frisbee. I played that in high school starting in eighth grade, and I debated starting in seventh grade. And I debated in a homeschool Christian league. So that at Stoa, and it's all over the United States. The biggest concentrations are in like California and Texas. Um, it's not very big here in Georgia, but we have a, a couple clubs or whatever. And I did that at another hybrid homeschool because my mine didn't have debate, which was um, also mostly white and debate was mostly white. Yeah, but I don't know if you can, can tell a pattern here that like I had a good mix of experiences with both like majority black, majority white spaces, more also more like diverse. I know I've been talking in like terms of black and white, but also like just more diverse in terms of like there are other races besides black and white. Um, kind of want to acknowledge that. <laughs> but yeah, and and so that was another, you know, majority white space. Um, there, it was not as much majority whiteness that caused like, there was clear kind of divisions. It was mostly like socioeconomic. I know this was in Buckhead, being the area that it was in, there was a lot more of just like the like sort of like richer upper middle class people and kind of the stereotypes associated with that. So yeah, that that kind of socioeconomic status played more of a, like a factor in like interactions and discussions around like that that environment than did race. But yeah, those are those were my communities and like you know experiences growing up that kind of set the launching pad and the foundation. You mentioned earlier that uh, growing up race was not sort of a a key thing for you. Do you think part of that is because of how diverse your communities were? Um, I think that could play a role. I think also most it it can be attributed to the fact that like my parents taught me not to care. My parents and my dad especially was a big proponent of Martin Luther King Jr.'s words you know, that he, he prayed for the day where people would be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And like my dad, and by extension, I applied that to like every, everyone, every extension. So like, just much as we would not like to be judged by the brown nature of my skin, I, you know, don't judge anyone by the pale nature of their skin or whatever varying shades you have. I know that kind of like philosophy coming from home and yeah coupled with the diverse you know experiences I had with great people of all colors all races that definitely probably played a factor um, in kind of my outlook on that well you're in college now at Emory what's your experience of diversity been like now in college I mean it's been it's been great uh, my first semester and or my second semester have been some of the best times of my life. Emory is very diverse. Like 
very diverse, one of the most diverse colleges in America, um, not just in terms of like black, but in terms of like, you know, other people call it Asian, Hispanic. Um, it's, it's obviously God's population of whites, you know, so it's got a very, very wide mix and diversity. In fact, just looking at the statistics, it's not even majority white, which is, you know, astounding for a top tier private school. Um, I think it's like 46% white, which is, you know, kind of crazy. So that's, um, you know, it's a very, very racially diverse place. I, I was listening to your earlier podcast with Will and who transferred in and he was talking about how he noticed that there weren't that many, he didn't see many African-American males on campus, which is totally true. That's the smallest demographic Emory has. It, it, for some reason, African-American males is such a, so much smaller than African-American females as a demographic at Emory. And that's why there's like BMI, the Black Male Initiative, which is like an entire floor of like a dorm that's just set aside for just black males to kind of like try to attract and grow that demographic at Emory. So like my experience at Emory, you know, have been really great. I have a pretty widely diverse group of friends. You know, I have white friends, I have Asian friends, I have some black friends, you know, yeah, they're female, male, all over the place. But one thing that's apparent is that like the black community at Emory is very mostly tight knit. It's very, very tight knit. I going into Emory, I was early decision ED1. So I knew December 16th of 2018 you know, that I was going to Emory. From them, I I was, like, approached, like, through, like, you know, just following people on Instagram or whatever. I stumbled upon, you know, an Emory 2023 group chat all the way back in, like, January of 2019. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty far out. And then there was a, a Black Emory 2023 group chat also back then that are both you know still going now and yeah it, it became very apparent that like i know the black community at emory was very tight-knit and like very you know protective of you know other members of the community but it seemed like you have to kind of make an in intentional effort to be a part of that community. So like, you know, I was not part of BMI, the Black Male Initiative, which the vast majority, like 90% of the black men on campus are in BMI. But I didn't even live on campus my first year. I stayed at home and commuted, which sucked. But that was, yeah, I did that. And so I wasn't in BMI, which was a, where a lot of like that close community was formed is between the black men, but uh, just in the black community in general, you know, you got to know everyone else, the, the upperclassmen in that kind of regard. So I didn't kind of get that, that, you know, very intertwined with the black community whatsoever. I have black friends, but they were made kind of outside that, like in my classes or whatever. So, you know, that, that's kind of just a part that I want to kind of highlight about 
not highlight, but just kind of point out about my experience at Emory was that like I wasn't and like still not like very intertwined, like intermeshed with the black community at Emory just as like a factor of, I don't know how it's formed. So yeah. What have the last couple of weeks been like for you? How are you feeling? I don't know. That's kind of like a hard question to answer how I'm feeling like as a black man, because to be honest, I'm feeling the same way as I was before. And let me explain that because like I, one of the things that I most intensely dislike is like hypocrisy. I very much dislike when people say one thing and do something else or when people are one way today and then the other way tomorrow. And I see a ton of that in what's going on right now. Obviously, you know, what happened with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor was horrible. None of them should have died. You know, it was Derek Chauvin, the, the police officer who knelt on George Floyd as just very clearly a pretty terrible person. I mean, he has a rap sheet in the police department as long as like, I know, a, a Home Depot receipt. But I, he, there's no reason he should have still been on the force to even come into contact with George Floyd. So it's obviously a horrible situation and I get why people are mad. But by the same token, these things have been, you know, happening long before George Floyd. It wasn't even this big of a massive protest and uprising for Ahmad. I mean, there's obviously a big movement for justice for Ahmad and run with Ahmad and all of that, but it was nowhere near this kind of nationwide level of protest, you know, and obviously Breonna Taylor kind of has gone completely under the radar, you know, and, and it, it's very kind of aggravating to me to see how the different responses to these incidents, it seems like the real reason people are mad is because there's an entire video of how long Derek Chauvin knelt on, on his neck was just kind of like that predatory glint in his eye. But it feels like, you know, the response to this is very much different than the responses to these very similar accidents in the past. And a lot of people have, you know, been saying that, well, this is just like we're we're fed up. I don't really, I don't really buy that as like the, the straw that for certain, certain people that that's definitely the case. But for me, I'm going to, you know, kind of react in the same way to all, all the incidents of the, of the same type. And so I'm going to be very angry. Like I hate that this happened. It was terrible. I, I'm glad that Derek Chauvin is going to be, and, and the rest of the police officers just stood around him, which is even kind of worse just like standing watching someone kill somebody and just standing around there are going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible but to me it like i have friends you know from debate or whatever who have never said one thing about police brutality in the pat in their 17 years of existence and now all of a sudden every single day i get 10 posts on their instagram feed about police brutality and protesting and rioting and racism and the system is broken and i have in five years of following these people on instagram i'm not seeing one single post one single feed and all of a sudden now they're the biggest supporters of black lives matters and they are so instagram active and i'm just like where is this coming from why are you like why are you all of a sudden so hot and bothered when you have never been hot and bothered before 
you weren't hot and bothered for Ahmad Arbery, you weren't hot and bothered for Freddie Gray, whatever. Um, I mean, and so to me, you know, life has been very much the same because I respond in the same way to all of these incidents. I'm, I'm sad, I'm angry, but I, I don't, you know, allow it to change. I don't talk politics on any social media. That's just like my, been my policy since the time I've had social media. I think it's completely ineffective um, and mostly counterproductive, especially Twitter. Oh my Lord, Twitter. It's the worst. People think they can have a succinct, they can have a, a valid, logical, reasoned out, you know, political argument in 180 characters. I'm sorry, but you can't. You just can't. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm, I'm coming from when I say that, like, it, life has been the same as it always has. For certain, there's more attention put on some of these issues, and I appreciate that. I think that's good. But I think a lot of it, like, you know, for the first week after George Floyd's death, you know, my Instagram feed, my Twitter feed was absolutely nothing but that. It was just nothing but that. You know, black squares on Instagram, you know, just all these protest links and all of that on my Twitter feed. And now, you know, oh, it's, you know, people posting pictures on the beaches again, you know, all of this. And I'm like, I am not one of those people who is just going to get all lathered up and worked up over, you know, this incident when this is something we should, if you truly believe in like police brutality and that the system is broken, then you should have been fighting before George Floyd, right? Like it shouldn't be the straw that broke the camel's back that someone has died. If you believe the system is broken and it's not just corrupt cops, then you should have been fighting the system already, you know? And if, and if you're someone who's legitimately just like, I didn't even realize there's a problem and now I realize that's a problem, that's great. I'm glad, but that should be, if, if this is, you're going to decide that this is something you care about, then that should be as, uh, until it's fixed, you know, moving on. And so for me, my position is that this is something that I agree needs a lot of change. Um, I, my way of, you know, enacting that change and, and my method of kind of, you know, being an influence and like uh, active is number one. I will have personal conversations. I will have conversations with my friends, with the people I, you know, interact with for a couple of reasons. Number one, because people interact with strangers, it almost never is a very good reasoned, like even killed conversation. It's usually the other side, one side demonizes the other side and it goes to personal attacks or it, it, everything becomes hyperbolized and exaggerated and you almost never reach like the balanced legitimate conclusion. But when I talk with my friends, people I know, I'm aware, you know, I'm able to listen to their arguments, understand their side, and it's a lot easier to kind of come to a balanced conclusion, have like actual constructive conversations. And so that's why I focus on, you know, I'll talk to the people in my, in my, in my circles and I'm not going to be on, you know, Instagram for my, you know, 1000 plus followers, whatever I have 
to, to everyone who, uh, you know, I met once at a party and now they're on my Instagram. Now I'm, you know, yelling at them about how to protest and all of that. Like, no, that's not going to be effective. So I'm not going to be out there, you know, a bit angry. I've considered going to protests or whatever, but also that I kind of shy away from that a lot of times because a lot of times that like protests, I appreciate the people who do. I get why you do it. A lot of times, in my opinion, they um, can be for so many things that you don't support. Right. Like, for example, you know, there are protesters in Atlanta who I know who have gone and protested and then two or three people will, you know, try to burn down the Waffle House. And now all of a sudden you're in that protest and you're one of those rioters and looters. But you weren't. You were just there peacefully protesting and like making a point. But, you know, it's so hard to control your message at a protest that I personally am someone who appreciates like precision and like making absolutely clear what my point is and not just kind of embracing a bunch of wide like yeah all of the everything in this basket yes i i support this so like I, it's hard to kind of control that message at a protest with a lot of people so you know that also hasn't really been my my method so you know like i said i have personal conversations or whatever and then i exercise my political power which is to vote those are the things i will do and those things and i'll like live in a way that that tries to point out some of their flaws um in people's positions if people think that black people are just violent or you know are criminals and that's why they get killed a lot then i'm just going to live my life in a way that's non-violent non-criminal and and you know challenge you with just that so that's how i react that's how i present myself in any kind of political kind of serious discussion and so for me you know george floyd's death hasn't changed what i you know it certainly brought the attention to wider it brought it has brought attention to the wider issue and it's brought a lot of people in but like i said that it, it hasn't really changed things for me because i'm still going to have personal conversations with the people in my circle i'm still going to vote in a in order to enact elect people who are going to create change who are going to um, do what's best for the communities and I'm still going to just kind of live my life so that's been my response and so in in that way my life hasn't really changed I still exist the same way that I did before this because you know I think that if I were to change and all of a sudden you know become the biggest you know Black Lives Matter supporter on Instagram or Twitter or go out to all the protests then I would be a hypocrite because I definitely haven't done that in the past and that's not something i plan to continue in the future so i mean it's just basically me out there looking you know looking good for maybe a month and then i'm back to normal so yeah so that's what i kind of meant by that statement whenever we share stories at bread we always end with have you considered questions as questions for the audience to consider at the end of the story do you have a have you considered for us today I would say something that's like really big in my life experience is have you considered the other person, like the other side? And I'm like, want to be clear here that I'm not talking about like saying, oh, well, have you considered the other side of George Floyd's death? Like maybe it was okay. Um, that's not what I'm saying here. Although I do believe you should consider all the facts in that. I, they're very clearly that it was a terrible, 
you know, action by the police officer. So like, that's pretty much settled here. What I'm saying is that in any conversation you have, any argument you have, any kind of political, social, any, anything of consequence, any decision, like any interaction you have with another person, have you considered the other side and the other person like beyond like, oh, they think this, they're stupid. Like, this is what they think. Like, have you actually really consider and try to understand what they're thinking and saying and why they're saying it? Because I don't care if you're talking to the most racist person in the world. Like, you know, I can be talking to somebody uh, who is the most racist person in the world and thinks I'm dirt and, you know, just wants me to be a slave again. And you are going to get nowhere with that person unless you're able to crack through why do they believe that right and if you can crack why then you can also crack how you get them to not believe that but you can't get to how unless you get to why and that goes for not just the people who are obviously wrong that goes for the people who you know just have you have differences of opinion with that may go one way or the other you know, some political disagreements that may go one way or the other by actually examining what they really believe and like why they believe it, you might surprise yourself and find yourself understanding and maybe revising and changing your position a little bit more. And I think that's important because especially in today's society, we're hyper-partisan, we are more divided than ever. Everything is super partisan and super polarized. Um, everything is very polarized and conversations very quickly turn into shouting matches, very quickly turn into personal attacks. And I've taken this like kind of advice from my years in debate. Like I said, I did debate for six years in high school. Um, and in debate, you have to consider the other side because you have to debate the other side. Um, you know, you can't No, there's no debate league in the world where you can just pick, um, something that you believe in and then just like go with that for the entire, you know, debate season or tournament or whatever it is and never have to debate against it or debate the other side. You always have to go both affirmative and negative or government opposition or whatever it is. So you are forced, to consider the other side and you're not just forced to consider it you're forced to argue it which is a really really great exercise for you know broadening your mindset and becoming more accepting of other people's positions um like you know when you are not just like okay fine i understand this it's like you have to argue it so you're actually forced to try to find reasons why it's true and and in the and in, in an argument, that's not what you do. And in an argument, typically people try to find reasons why you're wrong. When you debate, you have to try to find reasons why you're right. They're, the other side is right, because in a minute it will be your side. And when you do that, sometimes you uncover reasons that are legitimate and you're like, whoa. Sometimes you don't, but when you don't, all that does is strengthen your argument even more because you can, instead of just pointing out all the good things in your side and just like attacking them, you can actually say, look, I did the research on your position and it doesn't check out here. Here's the arguments. They don't check out. And then your position is even stronger. So there's no downside to 
trying to understand the other side and really actually trying to understand the other person and the other side. And I think that's like something that will benefit politics in this country, social conversations in this country, basically anything of note, anything of importance in this country a lot. And so I, I, I think that's something that I would definitely like to say to people, have you considered that? Have you considered the other side? Um, have you considered, you know, the other the other viewpoint? Maybe it's not as, as terrible as you think. Maybe it is as terrible as you think, but you can better understand it and better defeat it after you after you've, you know, considered it.